This is Naima Novetsky from TanakhStudy.com. Today we'll be continuing our study of Parashat Kedoshim, looking at Vayikra chapter 19, verses 11 through 18, a series of laws which deal with interpersonal relations, mostly focusing on the need to be honest and upfront in one's dealings with others. Let's start by reading the first few verses of the unit, which are all interconnected. Pasuk Yud Aleph. Lo tignovu, velo techachashu, velo techakaru ish ba'amito. You shall not steal, you shall not lie, you shall not deceive one another. Pasuk Yud Bet. Velo tishavu vishmila shaker, vechilata et shem elokecha ani Hashem. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and thereby profane the name of your God. I am Hashem. Pasuk Yud Gimel. Lo ta'ashok et reacha velo tigzol. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. And finally, Pasuk Yudalid. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am Hashem. These four verses form a string of prohibitions, with almost every phrase introducing a new mitzvah a new commandment. In fact, the Sefer HaChinuch counts nine distinct mitzvot in our few verses. The verses speak of various forms of theft, stealing, robbing, and withholding payment. They speak of various forms of lying, denial, lying, and swearing falsely. And finally, they teach us not to take advantage of the less fortunate. According to most commentaries, the deception mentioned in the verses refers specifically to the realm of financial dealings. And so really, the first three verses of the unit all revolve around one topic, the prohibition not to take away the property of others, while the last verse speaks instead about not taking away the dignity of others. Let's begin with the first mitzvah listed, lo tignovu, do not steal. What is included in this mitzvah, and how does it differ from the similar commandment of lo tigzol in verse 13? Ibn Ezra explains that gneva is defined as theft, taking another's property stealthily in secret, while gezel refers to robbery, taking another's property forcefully in the open. The Gemara adds that Gneva also includes a case in which someone steals only with the intention of causing another suffering while fully intending to give the item back. That person too is transgressing this prohibition. The Rambam explains, Ba'asur lignov derech schok o lignov amenat lachzir o amenat l'shalem. One may not steal as a joke, or even with the intention of returning the item, or even if one is fully prepared to pay the penalty for stealing. All is prohibited so that one not accustom himself to so doing. Many probably assumed that robbery would have a harsher penalty than simple theft. In Israeli law, for example, regular theft can be penalized with up to three years in prison, yet stealing that is accompanied by threat or an act of violence, can result in a prison sentence of up to 14 years. Interestingly, according to the Torah in contrast, while Gneva theft requires one to return the stolen item and to also pay a penalty, Gezel, robbery, requires one to simply return the object with no accompanying penalty. What is the logic behind this? The Gemara and Mesachat Bavakama presents Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's students as asking him this very question. He answers that a ganav, a thief, is punished more harshly because his actions betray that he fears man more than he fears God. He does his actions in secret 
lest he be discovered by his fellow man, forgetting totally that God can see no matter what. The Rambam gives a different explanation. He tells us, Since theft is more prevalent and common than robbery, there is need for stricter deterrence. As we mentioned earlier, many of the commentators on our chapter suggest that the rest of the prohibitions of our verses, though all forms of deception and lying, we fear, refer here to deception which is connected specifically to the realm of theft. Thus, for example, Ibn Ezra explains that lotachachashu, which literally means not to deny, refers to a scenario in which someone requests of you that you return a loan or an article that was left by you, and you deny that they ever gave it to you. Similarly, Rav Yosef Bahor claims that lotishakaru refers not to general lying, but to a case where you make a deal with your friend and you say, if you give me such and such, I will do a certain amount of work for you. You then take what is offered you, but never fulfilled your side of the bargain. Sforno echoes these extra deeds as he explains that the last prohibition in our chain of mitzvot, not to swear falsely, is specifically lihipater michiyuv mamon, don't swear falsely to get out of a financial obligation. These commentators' understanding of the various prohibitions is obviously influenced by the context of stealing which surrounds them but also by Vayikra chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, which use the very same verbs in the explicit context of financial obligations. Those verses read, Nefesh ki techata umaala ma'al ba'ashem, v'kichesh ba'amito b'pikadon o b'bitzomet yad o b'gazel, if anyone sins and commits a trespass against Hashem and deals falsely with his neighbor in a matter of deposit or of bargain or of robbery, o ashakit amito, or he has oppressed his neighbor, or he has found that which was lost and dealt falsely therein and swore to a lie. Here, the same terms, kichesh, ashak, and nishbal shakar, are explicitly connected to denying having taken another's deposit or having stolen something. As such, one can easily make a case that our verse 2 is speaking solely of deceitful financial dealings and not simply about general lying. Others, though, do read the entire verse to refer to more general deception, suggesting that not only does the phrase Veloti Shakaru Ishbamito refer to more general lying, but that even the phrase Lotignovu can refer to deception. There is a concept of Gnevat Dat, literally stealing someone's knowledge, which the Ritva and others suggest is learned from our verse. The Rambam gives several examples of actions which would be considered Gnevat Dat. For instance, trying to pass off meat even to a non-Jew as having been properly slaughtered when it is in fact not. This is prohibited even if you are not overcharging the person. Another example, a person may not mislead another into thinking that they are doing something special to honor them when they have no such intention. For instance, it's wrong to imply that you have gone out of your way to buy or make a special dish for someone if you really did not. Similarly, you may not try to give off the false impression that you like someone by, for example, continuously inviting them to eat by you, if you do so only when you know that they are unable to come. In other words, one may not be echad bapeh the echad balev, one way in speech and another in your heart. Going back to verse 13, We have already spoken about stealing and robbery. 
how does the command not to press to oppress the other compare? What does it include? Rav David Tzvi Hoffman suggests that oppression refers to pressure put on a weaker party by a stronger one. Like Gezel, it is done forcibly, forcefully, and in public. But while Gezel entails forcefully taking something from another, oppression refers to forcefully refusing to return that which rightfully belongs to another. If you owe someone money or borrowed an object for them and forcefully refuse to return it, you are transgressing Luta Ashok et Reacha. The Gemara in Bava Metzia adds another facet. Ezehu Oshek, Amar Rav Chista, Lech Vashuv, Lech Vashuv, Zehu Oshek. Someone who constantly pushes off another, saying, come back another time, come back another time, he too is considered to have transgressed this command. Though one might brush this off as not being such a serious offense, the severity by which Chazal views such an action is highlighted in the following story. Lemechota shares how in the time of Roman persecutions, Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Ishmael were taken to be killed. Rabbi Shimon was upset, for he could not figure out what crime of his justified his death. Rabbi Ishmael asked him, Has anyone ever come before you for judgment or to ask a question, and you pushed him off or delayed him, making him wait so you could finish your drink or the like? Rabbi Shimon responds, You have comforted me, recognizing that he had been guilty of transgressing the prohibition of oppressing another. The third prohibition of the verse states that one may not keep another's wages by them until morning. A similar prohibition is found in Devarim chapter 24, where we are commanded to ensure On his day shall you give him his wages, the sun should not set on it. In contrast to our verse, which appears to mandate paying wages by morning, Devarim obligates one to pay a worker before sunset. Rashi explains the apparent contradiction by suggesting that the verses speak of two distinct cases. Our verse refers to a day worker, and Zvarim refers to a night worker. The Torah mandates that the employer pay the worker within 12 hours of his work. If he worked during the day and finished at sunset, the boss has until daybreak to pay him. If he worked at night, he has until sunset of the following day. If so, Torah is sensitive to the needs of both the employer and the employee. One cannot tarry and delay giving payment, but the Torah nonetheless gives the boss some time to gather that payment. According to Ramban, in contrast, both verses refer to a day worker, the more common scenario, and they mandate that the employer pay him immediately upon finishing his work, as it says in Zvarim, the sun should not set. By us, he says, when the verse states, it simply means that you have to make sure that you do not leave the person's payment overnight in your house until morning. In other words, you must pay him beforehand by nightfall. And so the two verses don't contradict each other at all. Thus, in contrast to Rashi, Ramban understands that the Torah assumes that it is the duty of the employer to ensure he has the funds to pay his workers immediately. After all, they are counting on these wages to feed their family. Let's now move into the last two mitzvot of our mini unit. Don't curse the deaf, and before the blind person, do not place a stumbling block. You shall fear your God, I am Hashem. These verses raise several questions. First, the verse's placement. 
it's not immediately clear why these laws, which appear to deal with upholding the dignity of the disabled, are placed in the same unit as laws of theft. We would have expected the closing formula, Ani Hashem, to appear at the end of verse 13, the appropriate place to close the unit on financial dishonesty. Instead, it comes at the end of our verse, suggesting that somehow our verse is related to the previous discussion as well. What though is the connection between the two? It is possible that the Torah is simply highlighting that taking away a person's dignity is no less problematic than taking their property. But the juxtaposition still makes us wonder if the connection might go deeper than that. Second, out of all potential obligations that one could have chosen to mandate with regards to the treatment of the blind and deaf, why are these two singled out? The deaf person would not seem to be high up on the list of people to be bothered by someone cursing them. After all, he won't even hear it to be aware of it. And why single out putting an obstacle in front of a blind person? Are we really worried that a person would do such a thing? It's a purely sadistic action with nothing to be gained by the person doing it. These questions make some wonder if our verses really are talking about treatment of the disabled at all, or if perhaps there's a different way to understand the prohibition. Third, with regards to cursing, why is this prohibited? Do curses really have the power to harm a person? If Hashem does not want an individual harmed, would a curse not be ineffective regardless? And if curses are harmful, why limit the prohibition to cursing the deaf? Finally, why specifically here does the verse end, and you shall fear your God? Commentators address these questions as they explore both, as they explore both obligations and what they think each one entails. Regarding cursing the deaf, Ramban points out that the Gemara teaches us that really it is prohibited to curse anyone, not just the deaf. While a verse does mention only the deaf, another verse in Sefer Shemot singles out cursing a prince, and so Chazal learned that all are included, from the elite to the most unfortunate. Our verse mentions a deaf person perhaps only to highlight the severity of the deed. Even if the person won't hear the curse, it is still prohibited. According to this reading then, this mitzvah at least is not really about concern specifically for the deaf at all. Commentators disagree regarding the reason for the prohibition. Rambam, a rationalist, assumes that curses have no concrete power to affect the one cursed. A person's speech cannot force the hand of God to bring evil on another. As such, he suggests that the harm the verse is worried about is a psychological one. For the person cursed might be embarrassed or distressed at hearing himself cursed, even if he knows it will not bring him any physical harm. Rabbam then goes a step further, pointing out that since this shame and distress is not relevant when cursing a deaf person, there must be yet another reason for the prohibition. He assumes that perhaps cursing is prohibited not because of the anguish it might cause the person being cursed, but because of the way cursing might affect the person doing the cursing himself. Rambam explains that often a person curses another when he's overcome by anger and a desire for revenge. As such, perhaps cursing is prohibited in an effort to tame a person's anger. Sefer HaChinuch, on the other hand, raises the possibility that maybe there really is power in words to affect another's fate. Looking at people's reactions to blessings and curses throughout Tanakh, the Sefer HaChinuch would seem to have ample evidence for his position. If a blessing was meaningless, it's hard to imagine why Rivka works so hard to ensure that Yaakov receives it from Yitzchak instead of Esav. Similarly, 
If curses have no effect, why was anyone worried lest Bilam curse the nation and see for Bimidbar? Rationalist commentators explain away each of these stories, but I think it's worth noting that a simple reading of the verses might support the more mystically inclined. Moving to the prohibition against putting an obstacle in front of the blind. Four distinct understandings of our verse have been raised, each differing in how literally they take the verse. According to some, the verse should be read totally literally and refers to putting a concrete physical stumbling block in front of a person who is unable to see. Though this appears to be the simple reading of the verse, as we mentioned before, it seems an odd choice of crime for the Torah to stress. There would be, seem to be so many more common cases in which someone takes advantage of the blind that could have been mentioned instead. Uncleus broadens the prohibition a bit to include not just a blind person, but anyone who cannot see the obstacle, even if there's nothing wrong with his eyesight. This is not a significantly different reading, though, but it does suggest that our verse is not focusing on the disabled specifically. The Sifra, the Midrash Halakha in our verses, broadens the prohibition even further. He suggests that both halves of the verse should be understood metaphorically. The blind refer to anyone who is uninformed or oblivious in a certain matter, and the obstacle refers to any deed, speech, or object which will lead them to stumble or fail. Thus, for example, Rashi points out that one should not take advantage of another's ignorance and advise them to make a bad business deal. A final reading of the verse suggests that the prohibition also includes people who are not ignorant of a matter, but simply inclined to do the wrong thing. If you then tempt them to follow their inclination, you are transgressing our prohibition. These last couple of understandings of the prohibition are quite similar to the prohibition of Gnevat Dat, stealing knowledge that we just spoke about. Both involve misleading another person. As such, it is perhaps this motif of deception of the other, itself a form of theft, that connects our verses to the rest of the unit. As such, too, it is clear why the verse ends with the statement, and you shall fear your God. Deception, by definition, is something that the victim is unaware of while they are being fooled. Hashem warns, even if you have no reason to fear retribution from man, fear me, because I am aware of your actions. With this, we move to verses 15 and 16, which we'll discuss only briefly. If verses 11 through 14 dealt with the need for honest dealings with our fellow man in our everyday act interactions outside, verse 15 deals with the need for honesty in the courtroom. You shall not do injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor show favoritism to the great. But you shall judge your neighbor in righteousness. The verse is set up with a mini chiastic structure. The two phrases at the end and at the beginning, and parallel each other, each warning that justice be brought in the courtroom. The only difference being that one clause is formulated in the negative and the other in the positive. The middle two clauses also parallel each other, warning us to favor neither the poor nor the rich. The verse warns that though you might be inclined to pity the poor and rule in his favor, assuming that it will be a chesed to him, that is unjust. Similarly, though you might not want to shame the respected wealthy individual by ruling against him, you must recognize that in the courtroom, the only issue that is relevant to your ruling is the truth. Verse 16 moves to speak of two seemingly unrelated commands. Lo telech rachiel 
Lo ta'amod al damreacha, ani Hashem. Our verse warns against what is commonly referred to as lashon hara, speaking about another, even if true, and then states that one should not stand idly by while another is killed. Two somewhat opposite explanations have been brought to explain the juxtaposition of the two commands. Rav Yosef Bruchor asserts that all too often, speaking about another can lead to murder. If you pass on how another has said negative things about a third party to that party, they are likely to seek revenge and you will be partially at fault. This is concretized in a famous story in the Gemara, which speaks of how Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and others were speaking about Roman rule and their achievements or lack thereof. While one rabbi praised the Romans, Shimon Bar Yochai criticized them. A third party, Yehuda ben Givim, overheard the conversation, shared it, and eventually the information reached the ears of the Roman emperor, leading him to call for Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's death. Yehuda ben Givim likely shared the overheard conversation totally innocently, never dreaming that word of it would make it back to the Romans. But that is the nature of Rechilut, from the word Rochel, a peddler. A story is peddled from one mouth to the next, often eventually reaching the ears of whomever was the original subject of the story. On the flip side, the Minchat Yehuda suggests that the juxtaposition of the two prohibitions teaches that though there is a warning against Lashon Hara, speaking against another, and normally you should simply not accept what you hear being said about another, there is one exception. If you are here of plans to kill a third party, don't dismiss it as mere gossip and talk, but act on it first, just in case. In Tanakh, when Gedaliah is told that Ishmael ben Netanyah is looking to assassinate him, he ignores the warning, refusing to accept the Lashon Hara. Unfortunately, though, he does so at the expense of his life. With this, we move to the last two verses of our unit. Pasuk Yedzayin. Lo tisna et achicha bilvavecha, hocheach tochiach adamitecha, velo tisa lavchait. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. Pasuk Yudchet, lo tikom velo titor You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. Va'afta l'recha kamocha, ani Hashem. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Hashem. Our verses are bookended by two related laws, not to hate our brother and conversely to love our fellow man. In the middle are injunctions against taking revenge and bearing grudges and the positive command to rebuke your neighbor. The verses raise several questions. First, the verses appear to mandate feeling or suppressing an emotion. Can you really command someone to love or not hate at will? Can we control such emotions? Second, the verses state not to hate your brother in your heart. Does this suggest that it is only hidden hatred that is a problem? but that had one been open about it, that would be fine? A related question, what is the connection between the prohibition against hatred and the positive command to rebuke another? Does the juxtaposition suggest that the two are related, somehow flip sides of the same idea, or are they just two distinct commands? Finally, what does veloti salav chet, do not bear sin because of him? What does that mean? Is the phrase related to the need to rebuke or to the prohibition against hating, or perhaps to both? We'll review some approaches to these questions, seeing three very different ways to understand the laws of our verse. According to Rashbam, the prohibition lotisna tachicha bilvavecha, 
really is limited to internal hatred. The verse mandates that we not be two-faced, acting on the outside as if nothing is wrong, while inside we are, feel, we are full of hatred and enmity. Rather than keep our neighbor's perceived sin in our hearts, we sh- from the phrase, we should openly rebuke our neighbor. The assumption is that in so doing, we will promote understanding and eventually remove the hatred. According to this reading, the Torah allows for the emotion of hatred towards another, but only if one expresses it rather than keeping it bottled up inside. Others disagree, suggesting that despite the inclusion of the word bilvavecha in your heart, the verse is really referring to both covert and overt hatred. It is prohibited to hate another in both one's heart and openly to their faith. The verse only mentions in your heart because that is the most common scenario. Most people cover up their hatred. Alternatively, the word comes to emphasize that even if one keeps their hatred inside and it is never expressed to the other, and thus perhaps does not harm them, it is nonetheless prohibited. Don't think that only overt hatred is prohibited, so too is covert animosity. According to this reading, the command is a totally distinct command, teaching that one should rebuke another when they sin. The verse is not referring to discussing with your neighbor only personal wrongs done to you, but chastising someone for generally problematic behavior and sinning. Rabak stresses that when you reprove the other, you should be careful to do so in a way in which your rebuke will be heard and not in a manner which embarrasses the other. If done in the wrong way, it could be held for you as a sin. Thus the Torah warns, Velotisa lavchet. Ramban instead explains that someone who withholds rebuke from the other, allowing them to continue sinning, that person is partially responsible for the continued sins. The Torah warns, rebuke them, Velotisa lavchet so that you do not carry their sin. In contrast to the above two readings, Rav David Tzvi Hoffman suggests that our verse is not referring to an emotion at all. Rather, it is referring to actions which stem from the internal emotion of hatred. The verse obligates that one not act upon one's hatred of the heart, but it does not mandate anything about one sh- what one should or should not feel, perhaps because emotions cannot be commanded at will. He asserts that the command of Ahaftal Reacha Kamocha similarly obligates an action rather than an emotion, that one do acts of love, that we engage in chesed and the like, do to your neighbor as you would want done to you. Though there is much more that one can talk about with regards to these obligations, we'll end with a well-known story brought in connection to our verse in Bavli Shabbat. The Gemara shares that once an idolater came to Hillel and requested that he teach him the entire Torah while standing on one foot. Hillel famously replies, what is hated to you, don't do to your friend. This, Hillel says, is the entire Torah. The rest is simply commentary. This year focused on laws relating to personal, interpersonal relations with the common theme of honesty running throughout. One need be honest in business dealings, in the courtroom, and even with one's emotions. In Yerta Hashem, our next year will focus on the next unit of laws in the chapter, the series of Chukim in verses 19 through 31, those laws which deal with man's relationship not with his fellow man, but with God and with nature.